All right, Genesis 15, are we there? Yes. All right. At least one of you is there, so that's good. I'm there. <laughs> here, here, here. All right. Now, we know from Scripture, from reading Scripture, we're all at least semi-familiar with Scripture. We know that God's plan in the beginning was to create a society, to create a world in which He could have fellowship with all of His, His creatures, right? His creatures. He wanted to create a world in which He could give man authority and, and, and free will. And through that authority of, of the realm and authority of His own free will, that that man would choose to have fellowship with Him, right? And that was His desire from the beginning, to have a creature with free will to actually choose Him to be in relationship with Him. Right? Nobody wants to be, feel like they were forced to be loved, right? And so God wanted that. But we know also from reading Scripture how well that turned out, don't we? We know what happened in the garden. We know about the fall of man and the, and, and the sin that entered the world through that. So even from that moment, God began to set things in place and began to set up a plan of redemption for all of mankind. Even, even from the beginning of the garden, He began to set up a way to redeem the people back to Himself. Of course, as time goes on, you know, Cain and Abel and then um, Lahish and all the other guys, the world became exceedingly wicked. And so He sets apart a man named Noah. And He redeems Noah. And He makes a covenant with Noah, right? So then Noah and his family is saved. The world begins to repopulate and once again, we see that things begin to go downhill. We see it in the Tower of Babel, how they were seeking their own way in their own heart. We see it in the captivity of Lot and the kings that went to war. So we know that once again, we see this downfall of man. And at that time, God still wanted that intimate fellowship with everyone on the earth, right? He still wanted to be in relationship with, with His creation. But at that time, when you have Lot and Abram and all those characters running around, he was not widely seen nor widely known. And so he decides to start with choosing a people to begin the process of redemption for the whole world. He decides to choose a man and begin with him and through his seed bless all nations. And that man was Abram, who later became Abraham, right? And that's where we find in Genesis 15, this is where we find ourselves God creating a covenant with Abraham, well, with Abram at this point. And when you think about covenant and the word covenant, it's an ag agreement, and the word comes from a, a Hebrew word that means to cut in half, to cut apart. And so when they talk about covenants, they often say something like, to cut a covenant. You'll see it even in Scripture. It says, they cut a covenant. And what they would do is they would cut the sacrifice in half and put it on either side and walk through it. And that was one of the ways they did that. So we see that in Genesis 15, and I'm going to just read some of that. So uh, I want to read a lot of it, so stay with me. Verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That's good news, right? But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? In other words, he didn't have any kids. So, you know, there's no real promise of a future for Abram at that point, or for his lineage. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one whom will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then God takes him outside. It says, Then he brought him outside and said, Look, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. Can you imagine the stars that he saw? I mean, just think about that for a minute. Can you imagine? He didn't have the city lights or the street lights to get in the way and diminish the strength of the stars. I know there's been times I've gone up into the mountains and laid out on the rocks and looked up, and we were, you know, kind of way out there, and how much more brilliant the stars are. I can only imagine what Abram saw. So he said, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6. And he believed, he being Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. He goes on, How shall I know that I will inherit it? Verse 9, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two. That's what I talked about, cutting a covenant. Cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is a reality of our covenant with God. Sometimes we have to protect our covenant with God, don't we? Now when, Ab- when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Now certainly, no certainly, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And we saw that happen in the exile. And also, the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's talking about when they came out from Egypt and all the, the gold they were able to, uh, to get from them. Now as for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, and this is where the covenant becomes put in place. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven, blah, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So we see what's going on here is Abram takes these, the, the three-year-old heifer, the three-year-old goat, uh, and the other, and, and cuts it in half and puts them on either side. And the Lord makes this covenant with Abraham. Abram, he's still Abram at this point, and he goes through it with a smoking oven and a, a burning torch. Smoking oven signifies the um, judgment towards sin. And the torch is divine guidance. When you put the two together, it is a symbol, a sign of the holiness of God, of a holy God. And so this holy God goes through the sacrifice. And this moment of this covenant is the continuation or the the beginning or continuation of the elaborate plan for the redemption of man. And we'll follow it through. See, when any time a covenant was made back then, whether it was buying land or making any kind of agreement, this is what would happen is they cut the pieces and walked through them, okay? And they would say of the sacrifice, so be it unto me if I do not fulfill my part. In other words, saying, if I don't do my part, you can kill me. I offer my life on part of this covenant. So do you see what God is even doing in this beginning part? He's saying... I'm offering myself also as part of this covenant. Think about the, the magnitude of that. But it also says that if the covenant is not fulfilled, then the person that doesn't fulfill it 
their life is required of them. In essence, God is at this point by His own words and His own actions saying, they will be My people and I will be their God. So a lot of times when we talk about, uh, I hear people all the time talk about, well, God was harsh in the Old Testament. He was harsh toward the other nations. Well, by His own covenant, He had a responsibility and an obligation to jealously protect them, to jealously uh, keep other influences from getting into their life, to provide for them, to further their success, to physically protect and supernaturally protect. So what we may see now as harshness toward other nations was in reality Him jealously protecting His people out of obligation to the covenant that He made with them. And then also I hear them say, well, man, God was harsh to the Israelites when they disobeyed or when they did something wrong. He was always doing this or that. Well, by law of covenant, He had every right to kill them. It's amazing that there was even any left to write the Old Testament in the first place. The fact that there were some left shows the mercy of Father God. The fact that He didn't kill them every time they turned around and chose another God shows His extreme grace and mercy, doesn't it? Yes. So it's not Him being harsh, but Him staying to the covenant that was made. Are you with me? Yes. Which, as we go through the ages, makes Jesus even more beautiful. Because it magnifies the, the, the glorious mercy of Father God. I got excited about this. You may not be excited about it, but I'm excited. See, by right, every time that they stepped out in disobedience or they chose another God over Father God, He had every legal right to kill them. But He didn't. Again and again, He showed mercy. Again and again, He withheld as long as He could because He is long-suffering. I also kind of think it's one of the reasons you, you read there in Genesis 15 where it said he caused Abram to, to have a great sleep so that he couldn't walk through the, the sacrifices because he knew man wouldn't be able to do it on his own. So even as part of the covenant, he built in protection. Again and again, we see the mercy of Father God throughout all of the Old Testament. Katie and I go back and forth. She prefers the New Testament. I like the Old Testament because I like the history but I like the ability to see Jesus in all of the Old Testament. You know, we got to remember when the, when the New Testament saints, when, the, when Paul and Peter and all those guys were studying the Scriptures, they were studying the Old Testament. And they were seeing Jesus and having the revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's, and it's a, a beautiful picture. But the problem with this covenant, one of the issues that, that this covenant had from, from my perspective is that it was really only for the Jews, wasn't it? It was with a man in his nation, in his seed. So it was really only for the Jews. But what was the heart of Father God that we said in the beginning? That He wanted all of His creation. But He had to start with a people because He wasn't widely known at that point. But He wanted all people. So He begins this plan because His heart is that none should perish. So in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, all nations had to be blessed through his seed. We see that as part of the covenant, that all nations, not just Jewish nation, not just the Jewish tribe, that all nations would be blessed through him. So in order for it to be fully fulfilled, 
all nations had to be blessed, right? So there had to be a way for that door to open for the Gentiles to come into that covenant. What is really neat, what really got me excited about that is when you look at the Old Testament covenants that were made, whether it was the Adamic one, the Abrahamic one, the Noah one, the David one, there is always a provision for the, new, the promise of a new covenant. And there's always the provision of the fullness of the gospel found in it. There's always Jesus in every covenant that was made in the Old Testament. And it's amazing. Look at this. Follow with me for just a minute. <laughs> Follow with me for just a minute. And we'll see that Jesus is the culmination of those covenants. First of all, we see that He is the seed of the woman in the Adamic, the, the Adamic, Adamic, however you say it, Adamic covenant. That when, when He made that covenant with, with Adam and Eve... Genesis 3.15, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, capital S being Jesus. He will bruise your head and he shall, you shall bruise his heel. He's the lifeblood found in the covenant with Noah. Genesis 9.5, surely the blood of your lives I will demand and at the hand of every animal I will demand it. And at the hand of man, I will demand the life of man at the hand of every man's brother. It is that lifeblood that was required that we see Jesus in the covenant with Noah. He's the seed of Abraham in the covenant with Abram. We see Genesis 22:18, And in your seed, capital S again, talking about Jesus, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. If you, if you go back to uh, Galatians 3.16, I believe it is, you'll also see where it confirms that Jesus is the seed of Abraham that he's talking about. He is the Passover lamb that we find in the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 15, verse 19. All the firstborn males that come from your hand and from the hand of your flock you shall set apart to Jehovah your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your bull, nor shear the firstborn of your sheep. You shall eat before Jehovah your God year by year in the place which Jehovah shall choose you and your household. And if there is a blemish in it, lame, blindness, or any blemish, you shall not sacrifice it to Jehovah. You shall eat it inside your gates. The unclean and the clean shall eat alike. Only you shall not eat the blood of it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. He is that. That's a description of the Passover lamb that they were supposed to have in the Mosaic Covenant. That refers also to the cleanliness, the, the unblemished, spot, unspotted lamb that Jesus was, which of course we saw in Exodus when the first Passover happened, didn't we? And we know there's a beautiful picture of how Jesus is that Passover lamb. We know that. He also is the heir to David's throne in the Davidic covenant, isn't he? 2 Samuel 7 and uh, 12. And when your days are fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I'll set up your seat after you, who shall come out of your bowels, and I'll make his kingdom sure. He shall build a house from a name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of Jesus. So he is that... Uh, heir to David's throne. And he is also the sole mediator of a new and better covenant, isn't he? Hebrew 9, 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the new covenant, so that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
For where a covenant is, the death of him coveting, coveting, covenanting, <laughs> sorry, must be offered. A covenant without the offer of, of death is basically worthless is what they're saying. So there has to be life offered in order to fulfill the covenant. But a covenant is ended when a party dies. That makes sense? Obviously, if the person under the covenant dies, then that covenant is ended. Or when all is fulfilled, then it's ended. Keep reading in Hebrews right there. And I would really recommend go back and read Hebrews chapter 9 and read through the stuff. It's, it's really, really neat. It's amazing what Jesus did. For a covenant, this is Hebrews 9.17, is affirmed over those dead since it never has force when the one covenanting is living. It's the death that creates the power behind the covenant. Follow it? Verse 18, from where, which we see that neither the first covenant dedicated without blood, in other words, the very first covenant made was made through blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has enjoined to you. Sound familiar? This is the blood of the covenant. Jesus said it at communion at the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant, right? Da -da -da -da. And likewise, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Every Old Testament covenant contained Jesus. It contained the fullness of the Gospel. A picture of what Jesus was going to do, what He did, and what He was releasing through His life. See, when Jesus said, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, He was indeed quite literally fulfilling the requirements of the law and the requirements of the covenants. And some of those covenants did indeed require that death in order to be fulfilled or to end that obligation so that a new covenant could begin. So His death in one instance fulfilled all the old covenants and created a new covenant in that one moment. Not only was He that fulfillment of the old co covenant through death, but He was the sacrifice for the new covenant that was necessary so that we might walk between the two pieces of flesh. Remember I said, when you look at the covenants, it makes Jesus even more beautiful when you realize He's in everyone. It's amazing stuff. See, where before the covenants were always just for the Jew, Jews or Jewish people, this moment with Jesus dying and this cutting of the new covenant, the new and better covenant, made a way for all nations now to be blessed through, his, through Abraham's seed. It fulfilled all the covenants in, in so many ways that I can't even, can't even really fully grasp. But it opened up this, this new one. So God's elaborate plan of redemption was unleashed in the world in a new and powerful way in this one moment. By this, we can, we can see, first of all, that God takes covenants very seriously. And they're not to be entered into lightly. He warns us against that because it will cost you. Covenants cost. They have a price. But Jesus fulfills these covenants at the same time being the sacrifice for the new covenant. Do you remember the Lord's Supper when He took the bread? What did He do? He said, this is My body, and He broke it in two pieces. Remember the cutting of the old covenants? They were sacrifices 
torn in two. And so we see a continuation of the practice of covenant. And you remember it said that there was blood, that it cost blood in the covenant. And what did he do? He took the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood. And so we see the pouring out of the blood. It follows the same pattern, just like the cutting of the covenant in the Old Testament. So we're going to take communion today. And when you take it, what you are doing is you are reenacting and renewing the covenant with Father God through Jesus. When you break the bread and pour the wine, it's the two halves of the sacrifice. And it's the pouring out of the blood. When you eat it, it is the same thing as you walking through the sacrifices. You are committing to that covenant with Father God. And if you think about baptism in light of this, it's also why baptism is important because the old flesh can't fulfill the new covenant. So the old man must die. So baptism is us upholding our part of the covenant by putting the old man to death and dying with Christ because only a new man can live in the new covenant. You remember Jesus said you had to have new wine for new wineskins. So we need a new man for a new covenant. And this to a degree, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, because we're going to read there for just a minute. Paul's revelation of the the Lord's Supper. It also explains, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, 27, Paul was telling them, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Remember, I said covenant is a very serious thing. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Taking it in an unworthy manner, not rightly discerning the body, opens you to the potential of the consequences of the covenant made. With me? So it sort of explains what happens there. So when we take communion, we must realize it's more. It is so much more than just a religious duty that we do. It's so much more than just some act we do on Sunday. It is a present activity with past importance and future significance. Amen? Let's just read what Paul said about it real quick. If you go up to verse 24, chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks... Well, I'll start at verse 23. For I received from the Lord, this is Paul talking, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat. This is My body which is broken. Remember the cutting of a covenant. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the, of the new covenant in My blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Amen? It is a present activity with a past importance and future significance. In the past, we see that Jesus Himself said, do this in remembrance of Me. So when you remember Him today when we're taking communion, remember the sacrifice, but don't just think of it as Him as saving you, which He did do. Don't just think of it as Him washing you and making you clean, which He did do, and that's all part of it. 
but also consider the fact that He fulfilled every covenant relationship within that act. Realize that that Him going to the cross was the culmination of literally generations of planning on your behalf. That literally He took thousands of years to come to that one moment to make it available for you to know the Father. Because I don't think we have any Jewish descendants in here, right? We're all Gentiles, right? Are you? Okay, well, other than you. But us Gentiles, the rest of us Gentiles needed a way. Amen? I needed a way. And it's through those thousands of years of planning that Jesus made that way. And so when you remember that past importance is the, the, the revelation of God fulfilling all of those. It was God's burden. The, the covenant made with Abraham is called what, what's called a, a unilateral covenant, meaning that the burden of fulfillment was on one side. It was the Father's burden to fulfill the covenant on our behalf. Make sense? Every promise fulfilled in a moment. Jesus working in the past so that you would be able to enjoy your present and have a future. So there is past importance to communion. All your, all your past junk, communion is a reminder of it being washed away. It's a reminder of what Jesus did for us. A reminder of what He went through on our behalf. A reminder of all those things that Father God put in motion from the moment creation came onto the earth to redeem us back to Himself. It's a lot of work just for you and me. But that shows His great and awesome love for us. We see it as a present thing. It's something we do right now to help us remember back then, but also shows that He's working on our behalf today. That He's working in our life right now because Scripture tells us that He is an ever-present help in time of need. Taking it now shows and, and enacts a present faith in His past work and future coming. If you read... First, it also reminds us of, of a present work for us, something we are to do right now. If we read 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, it says, Purge out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, <laughs> even as you are unleavened. For also Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse 8, So let us keep this feast, talking about the Lord's Supper, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there is a present work for us to do. It gives us the chance in the present to enjoy the presence of God with fellow believers. It is an opportunity to celebrate together the present presence of God. Amen? It's in the future because it reminds us that He is coming again. Woo, I, that's a great thing. I'm with you, buddy. Whichever one of you let that out. It's good stuff. Not only do we have a future of His future coming for us to look forward, but we have a future hope for our lives now on earth before He comes. That we, we too can live in the resurrection power that raised Him from the dead on this earth. And this future coming, this future that He plans for, reminds us of the heart of Father God that worked, him, worked so hard to show Himself mighty to us. 
All the covenants, all the things we read in the Old Testament, everything working up to that moment so that you would know who He is. So that you could come into relationship. We remember 1 Chronicles 16.9 that says, My eyes search to and fro to find a people who is loyal to me that I might show myself strong on their behalf. His heart is for us. We remember Jeremiah 29.11 that says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. We also remember Ephesians 1. 18 to 23, I want to read that. The eyes of our mind, this is Paul. The eyes of your mind being enlightened for you to know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us, the ones believing according to the working of his mighty strength, which he worked in Christ in raising him from the dead. So we see it's the resurrection power. Yeah, He seated Him at the right hand in the heavenlies, far above rule and authority and power and lordship, and every name having been named, not only in this age, but also in the coming age. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to assembly, which is His body, the fullness of the ones filling all things in all. This isn't... Well, let me say it this way. This is a life now Scripture. This isn't an after we die Scripture. This power that He's talking about, this hope of His calling is for now. It does us no good to walk in the hope of His calling once we're in heaven. Nobody needs saved in heaven. Nobody needs set free in heaven. Nobody needs delivered in heaven. This power is a now, a life Scripture. This is a, a future for us while we're on earth doesn't do any good to walk those things out in heaven. Nobody needs it. Amen? So He worked in our past so we would know Him in our present and walk with Him into a glorious future. That's communion. That's what He's, what he's said, do this in remembrance of Me. It's about the fullness of His Gospel and the fullness of His heart toward us remembered. So when we take it, yeah, the mood should be somber in one sense. It should be serious, but not somber. That's what I meant to say. Because it is a celebration. The New Testament church, when they met for them, they called them feasts of love. Because communion is a revelation of the Holy God entering into a covenant relationship with you and upholding it and protecting it. And that's something to be excited about. So when we come to the table here in a few minutes, come grateful for what He did. Come thankful for what He is doing. And come excited about what's going to be released in your future. And I'm not, talk future, I'm not talking about future when you, oh, glory, by and by. I'll fly away. I'm not talking about that future. I'm talking about your tomorrows. I'm talking about your here on earth. Your heaven being released on earth through you. That's what communion is remembering. The potential that we all have to walk in a glorious nature and revelation of the Father God. Amen? That excites me. It is to remember Him. It is to remember His sacrifice, yes. But it's also to remember His joy, His love, His mercy, His grace, His fighting on our behalf to fulfill every covenant He ever made. Him standing to His Word. I want like John Bevere says, I want to preach myself happy. It's exciting to know that the King, Hashem Malek, 
is fighting on our behalf. That the king, from that moment Adam made a mistake to right now, has been up there watching, waiting. Shoked, we'll use another Hebrew word today. Shoked over us, waiting to perform his word. Waiting for this opportunity to walk in covenant with us. That deep fellowship relationship. Amen? I'm not going to... We already read the Scriptures. So we're going to take communion. And I want it to... I, you know, for years, I, honestly, for years, I took communion and I was always... Man, I always took it so serious. Because you're thinking... Oh, the blood of Jesus. It was such a hard sacrifice. But do you realize that Scripture also says that for joy over us, He did that sacrifice? So even He went to the cross with joy. So we got to get out of our weepy, whiny, complainy states and realize the joy that Jesus has over us and get happy. Amen or oh me? Amen. So when we come, there is a lot of seriousness to the cross. There's a lot of seriousness, but let's not be somber. Let's be celebratory of what Jesus did for us because it made for us the opportunity for a new and better covenant. Amen?